It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to another episode of Historical True Crime, the podcast that looks back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 63. It's also our first episode of 2024, so a happy new year to all of our listeners. Today we'll be journeying back to the year 1919, a time when the echoes of World War I still reverberated through the quiet English countryside. Our story begins on a tranquil summer evening in the picturesque village of Little Stretton. Again, the year is 1919, and the idyllic scenes of rural life are about to be shattered by a crime that will grip the nation. The protagonist of our tale is a young woman named Bella Wright, whose life was tragically cut short under mysterious circumstances. On July 5th, Bella Wright set out on her bicycle, blissfully unaware that this would be her final journey. Little did she know that her fate would be sealed that night, leading to a case that would baffle investigators and captivate public imagination. Join me as we unravel the layers of the Green Bicycle Case, a true crime saga that unfolds against the backdrop of post-war England, a time of societal upheaval, and the emergence of modern forensic techniques. As we dig deeper, we'll encounter a cast of characters, each with their own secrets and motivations. What happened to Bella Wright on that fateful night, and who was responsible for her untimely demise? Was it a crime of passion? A calculated act, or something more sinister? Fasten your seatbelts, dear listeners, as we embark on a journey through time to uncover the truth behind the murder of Bella Wright. To understand the investigation into Bella's murder, we have to delve into the world of law enforcement and forensic science of the time. In post-World War I England, the landscape was changing rapidly, and advancements in crime-solving techniques were emerging. However, the tools available to investigators were far different from what we would have today. Local constabularies, often with limited resources, relied heavily on traditional methods of investigation. The use of fingerprints was in its infancy, and forensic science was still in its early stages of development. The case of Bella Wright's murder would be one of the early instances where forensic evidence played a role. Authorities would attempt to piece together the puzzle using methods that might seem rudimentary by today's standards. Witness statements, physical evidence, and the keen observations of seasoned investigators became the primary tools in solving crimes. Additionally, the role of local communities and their relationships with law enforcement can't be overlooked. 
1919, villages like Little Stratton often had close-knit communities where everyone knew everyone else. This familiarity played a crucial role in gathering information and solving crimes. As we continue our journey into the Green Bicycle case, we'll explore how these early forensic techniques and community ties influenced the investigation. Let's start with Bella herself. According to the BBC and cycling historian Roger Lovell, she was the daughter of an illiterate agricultural laborer and lived in a rural cottage. But by early 1919, aged around 21, she had a well-paid job, smart appearance, a good social life, and the freedom to move around on her own. Bella's bicycle allowed her to enjoy her free time and to travel the five miles from her home to her job at a rubber factory, and this was essential to her independence. The Lester Mercury said that she was frequently spotted cycling by herself on the weekends, and was maybe only truly content when she was savoring the delights of the countryside. Like many women of her generation, Bella had tasted freedom during the First World War. All of the young men had gone and the factories needed female workers. So Bella left her job as a maid and would cycle the five miles every day to work in a giant rubber factory. Bella was regarded as a girl of good character and was well-liked by people who knew her in her neighborhood. She was engaged to a Portsmouth-based Royal Navy man at the time of her death and was probably excited to begin her new life. Bella's regular routine and interactions with people she knew throughout the day she died provide a wealth of information. For instance, we know that she went to post a letter she had written to her fiancé after working a night shift at the factory. Bella had made the decision to go and see her uncle that evening, who only lived a few miles away, and she rode her bicycle there. But her reliable bicycle had broken down somewhere along the way, leaving her fumbling with a loose wheel. Unexpectedly, a man on a bright green bicycle with curiously shaped handlebars pulled up next to her and offered to help. He promised to accompany her to her uncle's cottage so she could get her bicycle fixed because he couldn't provide the wrench needed to fix the wheel. Bella's uncle would eventually describe the man as unnerving and that he was waiting for Bella outside the cottage. The two of them rode off to presumably resume the ride home. It was around 8.50 p.m. and Bella was supposed to get home shortly thereafter. But Bella would never make it home. And by 9.30 p.m., a nearby farmer, Joseph Kowal, discovered her lifeless body in the center of a rural road. At first, police believed Bella had simply fallen off her bicycle and hit her skull in a fatal accident. The only additional evidence found was a dead bird close by and a smear of blood on the farm gate near her body. No fingerprints were discovered surrounding her to indicate that anyone else may have been present. Constable Alfred Hall, the police officer, wasn't really happy with how the investigation was going, so he decided to go back to the location where Bella had been discovered, and it was then he discovered a bullet, squashed into the soft earth under the footprint of a horse. With this new information, the physician would re-examine Bella's body and verify Hall's suspicions. After Bella's face was cleaned, it was found that the wound behind her left eye was actually a gunshot hole, and that the blood had originally covered it up. Bella had been murdered. According to Fiona Guy for Crime Traveler, police hypothesized that she had attempted to escape from the strange man on the green bicycle that evening by using a narrow road in an effort to go home safely. After examining her movements and learning about her encounter with this man, 
and they thought that he took a different route to cut her off. They believed the man must have met her at that farm gate, and after killing Bella with his gun, he fled the area. Thus began the search for the unidentified man on the green bicycle. In an effort to locate him, wanted posters were printed for a man with black hair, average height, and between 30 and 40 years old. But seven months would go by without any leads, and it seemed like this case might go unsolved. But by pure happenstance, a coal-pulling boat on the River Soar in February 1920 hooked its tow line on an object beneath the surface of the water. The handlebars of the elusive green bicycle that the police had been looking for were revealed. A local laborer came forward to report that he had seen a man tossing sections of a bicycle into the river only a few days prior. The authorities were eventually able to identify the bike's owner, Ronald Light, age 34, through purchase records, even though it was evident that attempts had been made to erase the serial numbers from the metal, police were still able to decipher them. Light, a troubled man, was the son of a wealthy engineer. In his history, he had lost his commission in the army, been fired from several jobs, and had been expelled from school. His background also included accusations of arson and inappropriate behavior with women, as well as falsifying military records. Even though witnesses would identify Light as Bella's companion on the day of her death, he would initially deny owning the bicycle or having ever met her. But from the same water the bicycle was discovered, they also retrieved a holster that was linked to Light. It even had the same bullets that were discovered close to Bella's body. On March 4, 1920, Light is taken into custody. He insists he has nothing to do with Bella's murder. He acknowledged that although he had been with her the night she died, they had parted ways when he left her uncle's house. He said that he had tried to destroy proof of being the man with the green bicycle and hadn't come forward because of his sick mother. But he even went so far as to acknowledge that he did own a revolver and the recovered holster. And to put it simply, he acknowledged everything, aside from the actual act of murder. But the trial of Ronald Light would begin in June of 1920. According to the BBC, author and crime historian Anthony Brown said, quote, Despite Light's very checkered past, public sympathy seemed to be on his side helped by his well-spoken and calm manner. There was a huge amount of circumstantial evidence against him, but he was lucky to be defended by one of the great barristers, Edward Marshall Hall, who took the prosecution case to bits. Hall was able to deftly cast doubt on the notion that Ronald Light was the person who killed Bella Wright. His client denied the killing, even though he freely acknowledged that the gun holster, ammunition, and bicycle did belong to him. Hall stated that it was impossible to say for sure that Ronald was a source of the bullet that killed Bella, and it could have been fired by someone else who was even firing a gun from a distance. He also mentioned the dead bird that was discovered close to her body as a potential explanation of someone else shooting in that area. Again, according to the crime historian Brown, his lawyer raised doubts over the bullet found near Bella. He suggested it could have come from a rifle. He suggested that it bore marks of a ricochet. Moreover, he pointed out that such a large bullet fired at a close range should have caused a larger wound on Bella. This raised the possibility that the bullet might have nothing to do with Bella, and also that her death was perhaps a tragic accident. Was Bella struck by a bullet fired by an unidentified third party who was hunting game in the fields nearby? Strange as it sounds, 
that small uncertainty was enough. Paul would also emphasize the case's lack of motivation because there was no robbery or signs of assault and he would present the theory that there must have been another figure who was responsible for the murder and hiding in the shadows. He also put a lot of weight to the fact that no one actually saw Ronald and Bella on that particular road at the time of the murder, making it impossible to establish his guilt. On June 12, 1920, the jury was satisfied with Hall's argument, and they found Ronald not guilty on all charges. Dimmer for the Lester Mercury would write, that shooting crows was a particularly well-liked theory of Bella's death. The theory, first presented in 1922 by author Truman Humphreys in the Strand magazine, accepted the jury's finding of light as not guilty. They implied that Bella had died in an accident. There was nothing like rooking the fields outside of Leicester to take down crows and other scavenger birds. Humphreys suggested that young people shooting a crow on the adjacent gate may have unintentionally shot Bella, that would account for the dead crow, the bloody bird tracks next to the body, and the blood on the gate. Another theory comes from Levi Bowley, the superintendent of the Leicestershire Police, wrote a statement he claims Light made to him when he was in custody three days after his acquittal. That Light had told Bowley the truth about what really transpired on that fateful bicycle trip, because Bowley had been kind to him. It was kept in a safe and admissible in court and discovered only recently. Its validity and authenticity are highly questionable. It says, quote, I did shoot the girl, but it was completely accidental. We were riding quietly along. I had my revolver in my raincoat pocket, and we dismounted for her to look at it. I had no idea there was a loaded cartridge in it. Her hand was out to take it when it went off. She fell and never stirred. I got on my bicycle and rode away. Now again, most people think this statement is fake, and if this confession was really made to a police superintendent, that they would have reported it sooner. There's also alternative ideas that suggest it was inserted into the evidence file as a kind of bizarre joke, or to add attention to the case. Many of you might be wondering what happened to Ronald after his acquittal. Well, he would change his name and actually lead quite a long life getting married and residing in Kent until his death at the age of 89. He would run afoul of the authorities twice more for acting inappropriately towards a woman and a child. But that's all the information that I could find. It's a century later, and Bella's case is still technically unsolved. But two books have since been written about what happened that night in 1919, both reaching different conclusions. In C. Wendy East's 1993 book, Green Bicycle Murder, Ronald Light is found guilty, whereas in H. R. Wakefield's 1930 book, Green Bicycle Case, they would maintain that Light was innocent. An unidentified buyer would pay $6,000 for the holster and bullets that were discovered in the river during an auction held in 1987 at Christie's Auction House in London. The infamous green bicycle, which for a long time had been hanging on the wall of a nearby bike shop for many years, simply vanished, and no one seems to know where it is now. And there you have it, listeners. The murder of Bella Wright in 1919 is still a mystery. Then as we close the pages on this episode, we're left with questions. If you have any insights, theories, or stories related to the Green Bicycle case, or any other historical crimes, feel free to share them with us on our social media platforms. But now as we part ways, remember that history is not just a record of facts. It's a collection of stories about real people that shape who we are today. 
Bella Wright was a real woman who tragically lost her life, and no one was ever held accountable. Until our next episode of Historical True Crime, I urge you to keep your fascination with history alive and your curiosity unbound. And remember, if you enjoyed this episode, to to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can reach us on social media, on Instagram at Historical True Crime Pod, or on Facebook at Historical True Crime Podcast. If you have a suggestion of something you'd like us to cover in an upcoming episode, please reach out on social media or by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. I read every email that comes in and it means the world to me when anyone reaches out. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.